Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayame Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It is brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am Abayome Azikawe. Uh, today is Sunday, March 26, uh, 2023. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast. Later on, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have perspectives on the devastating impact of the tornadoes struck the southern United States in Mississippi. The administration of President Joe Biden uh, has not struck down the federal death penalty despite his promises during his campaign. The Kenyan government has banned additional demonstrations by opposition forces. And United States Vice President Kamala Harris arrived in the West African state of Ghana as the first leg of a three-nation tour on the continent. In the second and third hours, we conclude our International Women's History Month series uh, with focuses on the historical and political legacies of Amy Ashwood Garvey, uh, who was a co-founder of the Garvey Movement and the Lifelong Pan-Africanist and Socialist. Finally, we review several speeches delivered by Coretta Scott King, the wife of the martyred Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude with the Les Amazon d'Afrique uh, from the album entitled Republique Amazon.
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe, and today is Sunday, March the 26th, uh, 2023, and we are our studios in downtown Detroit. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast. We just heard the music of uh, Le Amazon d'Afrique, uh, a all women's uh, orchestra uh, from personnel from uh, various uh, West and Central African states. And uh, we're going to move right now into our Pan African Newswire segment of our program. Our lead story deals with the horrendous uh, tornadoes that struck uh, areas of the southern United States state of Mississippi began pouring into one of the poorest regions of the United States after a deadly tornado tore a path of destruction across a long swath of Mississippi, even as furious new storms earlier today struck across the Deep South. At least 25 people were killed and dozens of others were injured in Mississippi as the massive storm ripped through several towns late Friday. A man was also killed in Alabama after his trailer uh, home flipped over several times. Search and recovery crews resumed the daunting task of digging through flattened and battered homes, commercial buildings, and municipal offices after hundreds of people were displaced. Gerard Kunzi drove to the hard-hit Mississippi town of Rolling Fork from his home in Alabama ready to volunteer, quote, in whatever capacity I'm needed, end quote, quote, Everything I can see is in some state of destruction, end quote, he said. Kunzi was among volunteers working earlier today at a staging area where bottled water and other supplies were being ready for distribution. You can read this article in its entirety over on the Pan-African Newswire. In other news from the United States, uh, Rijon Taylor hoped the election of Joe Biden, the first U.S. president to campaign on the pledge, to end the death penalty would mean a more sympathetic look at his claims that racial balance and other uh, trials errors led him on a federal death road in Terre Haute, Indiana. But two years on, Justice Department attorneys under Biden are fighting the black man's efforts to reverse his 2008 death sentence for killing a white restaurateur as hard as they did under Donald Trump, who oversaw 13 executions in his presidency's final months. Every legal means they have available, they're using to fight us, said the 38-year-old lawyers, Kelly Henry, uh, it's business as usual. The death penalty opponents expected Biden to act within weeks of taking office 
to fulfill his 2020 campaign promise to end capital punishment on the federal level and to work at ending it in states that still carry out executions. Instead, Biden has taken no steps towards fulfilling uh, this promise. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. In East Africa, Kenyan police uh, chief announced a ban on fresh opposition demonstrations called for tomorrow, Monday, after protests last week degenerated into riots. Quote, we will not allow violent demonstrations, end quote, said Inspector General of Police, Jafet Kumi. He told this to reporters earlier today. The demonstrations they plan tomorrow are illegal and will not be allowed, he said, adding that his force was ready to keep the peace and would arrest anyone carrying out offensive weapons. Veteran uh, opposition leader Raya Odinga, who has called for people to take to the streets on Monday and Thursday against President William Ruto over the high cost of living, remained defiant. Quote, I am asking our supporters and all Kenyans to come out and join the peaceful demonstrations, he said at a church service earlier today. I want to tell Mr. Ruto and the Inspector General Kuume that we are not going to be intimidated, he said. We are not going to to fear tear gas and police. Last Monday's demonstrations, which were not authorized by police, descended into violence with riot police firing tear gas a water cannon at hurling rocks and setting tires ablaze. A university student was killed by police fire, while 31 officers were injured in running battles in Nairobi and opposition strongholds in western Kenya, according to police. More than 200 people were arrested, including several senior opposition politicians, while Odega's own convoy was hit with tear grass and water cannons. And finally, In the West African state of Ghana, Vice President Kamala Harris of the United States was greeted by schoolchildren, dancers, and drummers as she arrived earlier today in the West African state of Ghana for the start of a week-long visit to the African continent intended to deepen U.S. relationships amid global competition over the future of the continent. We are looking forward to this trip as a further statement of the long and enduring, very important relationship and friendship between the people of the United States and those who live on this continent, Harris said. The children cheered and waved Ghanaian and U.S. flags as she stepped off her plane after an overnight flight. She smiled broadly and placed a hand on her heart as she passed by the dancers. What an honor it is to be here in Ghana and on the continent of Africa, Harris said. I'm very excited about the future of Africa. She said she wanted to promote economic growth and food security and welcomes uh, the chance to witness firsthand the extraordinary innovation and creativity that is occurring on the continent. Ghana is one of the continent's most stable democracy, but Harris is arriving at a time of severe challenges for the West African nation. Its economy among the fastest growing in the world before the COVID-19 pandemic faces a debt crisis and soaring inflation that is driving up the cost of food and other necessities. And of course, the country is now uh, under a international monetary fund conditionalities loan agreement. With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. 
In concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, some 25 years ago, and since then has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do is go to our website, and that's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, March the 26th, uh, 2023, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. I want a Sunday kind of love, a love to last past Saturday night, and I'd like to know it's more than love at first sight.
Uh, the voice of Etta James, the legendary Etta James, and uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast, this special edition of our program, and this is a Sunday kind of love here at the Pan-African Journal special worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Uh, we're going to uh, move forward with our International Women's History Month uh, programming with a special focus on Amy Ashwood Garvey, uh, the legendary uh, Pan-Africanist and socialist uh, who uh, was a co-founder of the Universal Negro Improvement Association along with uh, her first husband, uh, Marcus Garvey. And, of course, uh, Amy Ashwood Garvey, even after departing from the UNIA, had an illustrious uh, career. Uh, as a public intellectual, as an organizer, as a cultural uh, supporter of music and uh, social interactions among African people from the entire uh, globe, uh, from the United States to Western Europe to West Africa. Let's listen uh, to a tribute that Amy Ashwood Garvey did to Marcus Garvey uh, some many decades ago. This is a souvenir recording in memory of the Honorable Marcus Garvey, the Jamaican hero who pointed the way to African independence in its clarion call for a new day and a new and greater destiny for his people. His immortal spirit, like a mighty dynamo, 
vital, alive, ennobling, still inspires his people along the path to human dignity, racial pride, and national sovereignty. The ideals for which he fought, lived, and died. linger on. Listen to the spiritual self of the immortal Marcus Garvey. In poetry, in song, and in music, the memory of a people is best portrayed. of the age. Who was this man of whom the erudite James Weldon Johnson once said, he had the daring and energy of the Napoleonic personality that draws masses of followers. He stirred the imagination of the masses 
as no other leader ever had. In the course of time, this man, Garvey, brushed aside the Goliaths of the first independent nation in the Caribbean, and he became Jamaica's first national hero. Who was Marcus Garvey? Marcus Messiah Garvey was a man, earthbent, for the eternal search of oneness with the universe. He was born at sunrise in the beautiful garden parish of St. Anne, Jamaica, West Indies, on the 17th day of August, 1887, near the falls of the Roaring River, where he grew with nature and drank much of our inspiration. He was of humble birth and was the eighth child of Sarah and Marcus Mosiah Garvey Sr. Garvey was born in an atmosphere of prophecy. When his father first saw him, so close a resemblance did he bear him. He was overcome with joy and he lifted him up in his arms and cried out, Your name shall be Mosiah and you shall someday be a Moses. There was nothing in the drab lamplit setting in which Garvey stood to speak in his native St. Anne that night in October 1914, which gave the slightest flicker of the shape of things to come. No one present, not even Garvey himself, believed that the stern-faced man standing so nervously before him in Jamaica would someday hold a star aloft and urge millions to gaze on it and follow him. Marcus Garvey set out on the lonely trail of smashing many of the preconceived ideas which made the black man inferior in his thinking, such as to believe that he was belonging to a vicious and predestined evil race, that God and the angels were white, that he, the black man, personified the devil, who was reputedly black, that he was the likeness of black magic and misfortune, the son of Ham, a hewer of wood and drawer of water, and that all the creation of the dominant white civilization calculated to foster the concept of white supremacy was ordained by God. Garvey was an angry man. He smote his chest and demanded to know the author of the scurrilous wicked forgery four thousand years after Noah had gone to his grave in peace. When he spoke in Madison Square Garden, he served notice on all the nations squatting in Africa to get out before the wrath of four hundred million black men, women and children hurled them into the sea. Arising from obscurity, Garvey's never-to-be-forgotten oratory took him to the very apex of fame. Millions unquestionably followed him. Such were the conditions of his people bowed down with inferiority complex for hundreds of years that Garvey visibly touched the tears and compassion in the deliverance of his message emphatically thundered. Up, ye mighty race! You can accomplish what you will. The black man of yesterday has disappeared from the stage of human activities forever. And in his place stands a new man, erect, conscious of his manhood and right, and fully determined to preserve himself at all costs.
Marcus Garvey, in his finest hour in Liberty Hall, New York, in the 1920s addressing the Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League, said so many things applicable to the conditions of today. To read the world's history of races written by some writers gives the impression that the black man amounted to nothing in the creation. We are satisfied, however, to know that our race gave the first great civilization to the world. For centuries, our ancestral home was the seat of learning, and here black men who were fit for the gods were philosophers, scientists, artists, and men of vision and leadership. On the other hand, our traducers were groping in darkness and continental barbarism. Black men, you were once great, and you will be great again. Great men have come out of Egypt, out of Ethiopia, out of Africa, Sahara. Great men will come out of America, the West Indies and the islands of the sea. Our history is as great as that of any race or people, and nothing on this side of heaven or hell will make us denied, notwithstanding the false treaties, essays, speculation and philosophies. Their arrogance is but skin deep, and an assumption that has no foundation in morals nor law. Then we were embracing the sciences on the banks of the Nile. When our civilization had reached the noonday of progress, their ancestors were still running naked and sleeping in holes with bats, rats, and other animals. Garvey's messianic message to the groping millions of his race would surely bring him to Barbosa. His leadership would emancipate millions from the shackles of mental and moral servitude. It was the great gulf, it was the violent contrast between the upper and middle classes and the people of his race which made the first telling impact on the mind of the youthful Garvey. Illiteracy and grinding poverty were the two decisive factors which contributed to his impact. Like Socrates, Garvey geared himself for his cup of hemlock, like a Christ on his way to a blood-stained cross. Before his death, however, in 1940, he would have the satisfaction of knowing that a squalid century after the emancipation of 1838, the men and systems against whom he fought such a good fight had lost forever their footing on the ladder of imperial and economic power. Marcus Garvey left you a special message, my children. Let no voice but your own speak to you from the depths. Let no voice but your own rouse you in time of peace or war. Hear all, but attend only to that which concerns you. Your allegiance shall be to your God, then to your family, race, and country. Remember always that the Jew, in his political and economic urge, is always first a Jew. The Caucasian is first a Caucasian under all circumstances, and you can do no better than to be first and always a black man. Be sure to teach your children science and religion, for it lies as our only hope to withstand the evil designs of modern materialism. Lift up your hearts and repeat to yourselves the words of the African poet Terence. I am a man, and I think that nothing that is common to humanity is foreign to me. Garvey endeared himself to his thousands of listeners 
many dramatized and immortalized heroes and heroines of Afro-American history. Through the power of his oratory, Garvey showed them that Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman were equally deserving of a niche in the Hall of Fame as Martha Washington and Betsy Ross. They were made to feel that the muse which inspired Phyllis Wheatley was no less fine than that of Elizabeth Barrett Browning. The black poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar was made to take his place with the great poets of the world. It was seen that the African General Hannibal surpassed Napoleon in military genius, and Toussaint Louverture and Antonio Matteo were worthy of comparison with George Washington and Lord Kitchener. Marcus Garvey's spellbound audiences heard that Christopher Athos was as great as Patrick Henry, and that the Ethiopian Queen of Sheba outshone Britain's Queen Victoria in the splendor of her court. Solomon, in his wisdom, towered above Gladstone. King Menelik was more than Abe Lincoln. Never before had the descendants of the slaves been so afflicted. Marcus Garvey delivered that message, and all the world wondered. Africa for the Africans, those at home and those abroad. It was the same message delivered 4,000 years before by the Jewish patriots. Let my people go. Ladies and gentlemen, at the end of his journey, we pause to assess his work and worth. We find that Marcus Garvey has left his people in America at the crossroads of history and destiny. The now 38 independent states in Africa are the first of the fruits of them that slept in the chronology of his prophecy. To quote his own words, Hail, United States of Africa, hail. Also Trinidad and Tobago, Barbados, Guyana, and his own homeland, Jamaica, still on the wave of freedom. The associated states within the British Commonwealth of Nations, Grenada, Antigua, and Barbuda, Montserrat, St. Kitts, and Nevis, St. Vincent, St. Lucia, Dominica, Anguilla, and the British Virgin Islands, flying the flag of freedom and independence, and echoing the voice of Marcus Garvey. Whatever his failings, Marcus Garvey brought fresh hope and courage to his people. Mankind has benefited because Marcus Garvey passed here. And who knows, but someday posterity will confirm him in the title of the Black Moses. Then millions of black men, women, and children will make the pilgrimage to his shrine in Jamaica. For they will have come to pray and kneel at the tomb of the father of African independence. Oh, he vowed to win his race's destiny, to lift them up from ignorance and hell. With deathless courage, fashioned victory, fighting unequal fairs, what if he fell? He's gone, tis true. But history yet will tell that Marcus Messiah Garvey did his work. And he did it well.
Welcome back. And uh, that was a tribute to uh, Marcus Garvey. And, of course, uh, it was entitled uh, Amy Ashwood Garvey, a tribute to uh, Marcus Garvey. And uh, the date uh, we found on this uh, release is 1968, uh, the question of independent African states. It was mentioned that there were 38 uh, at the time uh, in 1968. And, of course, uh, there was also reference to uh, independent states in the Caribbean island nations of Trinidad, uh, Grenada, Jamaica, among others. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast. Uh, March is International Women's History Month. In this uh, segment, we're paying tribute to uh, Amy Ashwood Garvey. Next, we're going to hear a lecture on the lifetimes and contributions of Amy Ashwood Garvey. Let's listen in. So good evening and a warm welcome to all of our intellects and thinkers and a warm welcome to our friends from the Institute of Pan-African Thought and Conversation in South Africa. It's good to be back and good to have you here with us once again for this, the eighth lecture in the Pan-African Pantheon series, the series that takes a critical look at the most prominent prophets, poets and philosophers in Pan-African history. The series taken from the work of our comrade and friend, Dr. Adekeya Adebajo, in assembling the top table of global African intelligentsia to compile a body of literature that gives us the depth and breadth of Pan-Africanism's most important figures that no other work has achieved to date. I am, of course, talking about his book, The Pan-African Pantheon, which I'm sure by now you all have your copy and are enjoying reading it as much as I have over the last few weeks. As many of you know, my name is Kaita Alfred, and I bring you warm greetings from North London this evening. As is tradition, if you're here for the first time, it is customary to just tell us where you're logging in from in the chat. So if you could just let us know your name and location as everyone's getting settled, I'd be very grateful. So let me have a look at the chat and see where people are. So we've got Nigel in Hitchin, UK. Hello, Nigel. Anyone else want to let us know where? where you're logging in from at all. You just put it into the chat. I can see someone's got their hand up. If you could put it into the chat, that would be great. And then I can let everyone know. I've got Elizabeth from Durbanville, Cape Town. Welcome. Shaquille, um, my name is Isadio, living in London, Stratford. Welcome. Uh, Muli from Trinidad. Welcome to you also. We're very international this evening. Very international. Welcome, welcome to everybody. God, all the few coming in now. So Ola from South London. Um, got our base in Germany here together with Shirley and Tate. Okay. Uh, you from Berlin. Patrick from Trinidad Tobago. Clarita from Italy. Wow. Uh, Mackenzie from Johannesburg, South Africa. Patrick Gomez saying hi. Charmaine saying hi from London. Uh, Mickey from North London via Cape Town. Welcome to North London. Uh, we've got Zuzil in South Africa, McKeezy in Jamaica. Amazing. Wow. So on behalf of everybody uh, at the Centre of Pan-African Thought and the Institute of Pan-African Thought and Conversation, we do just want to say it's a pleasure to have you here and I hope that you leave tonight's lecture feeling inspired, feeling enthused and just itching to learn more about our pantheon tonight, for tonight, who is none other than Amy Ashwood Garvey. 
uh, Marcus Garvey's first wife and co-founder of the UNIA ACL in 1914. She's actually the first woman to feature in these lectures. And as the first, it's only right that we feature a woman who may well be the most important African feminist of the 20th century. So let's start. Hopefully we're all comfortable and ready, notepads and pens. Uh, tonight's guest is the former deputy principal of the University of the West Indies, St. Augustine campus in Trinidad and Tobago, so Professor Rhoda Reddick. Uh, also the first woman to lecture at this series as well, might I add. Rhoda is an emeritus professor and academic specialising in gender, social change and development at the University of the West Indies. She has written over 70 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters. She has eight book publications under her belt, including titles such as Women, Labour and Politics in Trinidad and Tobago, A History, Elma Francois, the NWCSA and the struggle, Worker Struggle for Change in the Caribbean, Interrogating Caribbean Masculinities and Sex, Power and Taboo. Just to remind everyone, the professor is going to talk for about 35 to 40 minutes. Uh, I will then be in conversation with her for another 20 minutes or so, just to unpick some of the key themes from her chapter of the book. I'll then turn over to you guys and moderate a Q&A in which you will then get the chance to ask the professor any of your questions directly, or if you prefer, you can pitch them in the chat and then I'll field them on your behalf. As usual, questions will be asked in rounds of two or three at a time. All I ask is that you please stay on mute until the time comes for you to speak, and when that time comes, I'll ask you to raise your virtual hand and wait until you are called. So without any further ado, please do give me a, uh, join me in giving a very warm welcome to Professor Reddick. Professor, it's over to you for the next 35 to 40 minutes or so. Thank you very much to all the organizers and to Professor Ade for making me part of this historic collection and also this lecture series. Uh, my theme today, of course, is the internationalist and Africanist global feminism of Amy Ashford. I am going to share my slides. Okay. Are you seeing them now? Are you seeing? Right, good. Okay, thank you very much. Until the turn of the 20th century, Amy Asher Garvey, the first wife of Marcus Garvey, was relatively unknown in her native Jamaica. Much more was known of his second wife, Amy Jake Garvey, his biographer, and the mother of his children. Amy Jakes was an outstanding thinker, writer, and activist. And it's probably to his credit that both of Garvey's wives, the two Amy's, were more than simply the helpmeet of great leaders. Practice at that time would have expected. Indeed, it has been argued by Eula Taylor that the work of both women reflected the unflinching determination to make feminist issues fundamental to the global black intellectual enterprise. In many ways, this has changed. An emerging scholarship on the expansive career of Amy Ashford Garvey has emerged, shedding new light on her life and career. 
More recently, the more recent biography by, of, by Marcus Garvey's scholar, Tony Martin, provides the most comprehensive and detailed recording of her life and work. However, it is also the most unsympathetic. This presentation focuses on Amy Ashwood Garvey as a lifelong internationalist, pan-Africanist, and feminist, tracing the shift in her intellectual and political development, and also her work and travel in North America, the Caribbean, the United Kingdom, and Africa. Most of the early activists, pan-African activists, came from the diaspora, in particular the Caribbean and the United States. And the early conferences and congresses through which much of its history is traced took place outside of continental Africa. While some have critiqued this black internationalism for the absence of women's voices, this is largely incorrect. I have argued elsewhere for a West Indian Pan-Africanist feminist and pro-feminist consciousness that characterized the politics of male and female leaders in the first half of the 20th century. This was true for both Pan-Africanism in, Pan in its purer cultural nationalist sense, and to a lesser extent, also true of the more Marxist-oriented thinkers. It is significant that many address issues of women and what we would today call gender, even if only briefly, at a time when women and gender as categories were largely excluded from discussions of recent class. And this is a thread that runs through some of their works, although sometimes treated as incidental. Despite this, however, their personal life does not always reflect this awareness. Amy Ashwood Darby, therefore, represented a native Caribbean feminism, emerging from the racialized and colonial histories of Caribbean people, a feminism which was located in the ongoing struggles of its people at that time. Kumari Jayawadina argues that the movement towards women's emancipation in Asia and the Middle East was acted out against the background of nationalist struggles aimed at achieving political independence, asserting national identity, and modernizing society. In the Caribbean, many of these early 20th century feminisms took the root of Pan-Africanism, radical Pan-Africanism, or socialism, stroke communism, or combinations of all of these. Additionally, as Honor Ford Smith would assert, Early Pan-Africanism, in particular the Garvey movement, provided an important training ground and social and political base for the emergence of early 20th century feminism in the Caribbean and elsewhere. Now, why Amy Ashwood Garvey? Amy Ashwood was one of a number of Pan-Africanist women of the early 20th century whose work was central to its emergence spread, and successes. Her contribution was remarkable in that it spanned several decades, extended to over four continents and regions, and involved collaborations with some of the most influential thinkers, political activists, 
Pan-Africanist and Socialist leaders of the early to mid 20th century. What is often forgotten is that these primarily full-time activists survived primarily by their wits and the benevolence of well-wishers, eking out an existence for themselves and their cause. This was not easy to do in the racist, Calabad, and McCarthyite era in which they operated. And this was very much so for Amy Ashwood and Marcus Garvey. As full-time activists, their vision of racial uplift and black business success was fueled both by Amy's family background in business and Marcus's attraction to Booker T. Washington's ideas of black self-reliance. The realities of day-to-day survival and the conflict between the business and the political imperatives of their lives, however, would dog them for their entire adult existence. Hi, Rhoda. Sorry, I'm so sorry to interrupt. Um, would you mind presenting as a slideshow? Because at the moment we can just we can see all of the slides down the side. But is it possible for you to present with a slideshow view at all? Well, some of it, because not all of it is on the slides. But um, uh, as in the presence, okay. But but I I could try. That's how you do um you go to view and then I think you can say present as a slideshow. I know I thought about that, but not all the information is on the slides. But I could oh. try. Okay, thank you. Okay, Amy was born on January 10th, 1987 in Port Antonio in the parish of Portland, Jamaica. She was the third child born into a middle-class family. Her father was a businessman and uh, a baker, and he had, they were in a way more better off than many in her community. For part of her early childhood, they lived in Panama, where her family relocated shortly after she was born. And her father ran a printry in Colon. And during that time, she returned to Jamaica with her mother and was enrolled in the Baptist Westwood High School for Girls at Stewarttown Trelawney, which was founded by a Baptist minister, especially for dark complexion girls who, were not at, who could not attend the other secondary schools. And in a way, this is a reflection of the structured colorism that affected Jamaica and many other parts of the Caribbean. From very early, Emma's extreme intellect and extraordinary inclination to articulate her voice viewpoints became evident. And uh, she was already beginning to manifest her social consciousness from very early. She became aware of her African ancestry from a teacher at her secondary school. Like other parts of the Caribbean, uh, literary and debating societies were part of the intellectual life of many. And Amy, of course, had aspirations to a theatrical career and had acquired excellent skills. And it was in one of these meetings of the Literary and Debating Society on July 17, sorry, late July 1914, at the age of 17, that she met Marcus Garvey. She was debating the proposition 
that morality does not increase with the march of civilization. And he argued in support of her point of view. She accounts that this an elaborate exchange of ideas sparked a romantic relationship where their connection revolved around their similar passion for Africa and African people and a belief in the need for immediate action. Amy recalls her second. When the meeting had dispersed, I went off to catch the usual tram home, she said. But waiting at the stop was a stocky figure with slightly drooping shoulders. He seemed familiar. And then he realized he was the gentleman who had argued so forcibly from my point of view. Excitement over the debate had vanished, and I saw clearly that an intense light shone from the light of this my unknown supporter. Then followed the greatest surprise of my life. The bold stranger came forward impulsively and without any invitation addressed me in the most amazing fashion. At last, he said in his deep voice, I have found my star of destiny. I have found my Josephine. It is obvious that Marcus had penetrated to the very core of the afflictions of the man of African origin, she said. He divinely, accurately, and precisely identified the cause and effect of the spirit of his people being broken and destroyed. And he was intent on finding an elective, a drastic remedy to heal the festered and chronic wound. So, in her account of the birth of the Universal Negro Improvement Association, which was the better known as the Garvey Movement, Amy claimed to be a co-founder of the organization. Tony Martin, however, disputes this, arguing that a 17-year-old girl could not be a co-founder of such an organization. Yet, the evidence shows that she and Marcus were the earliest members of the organization. She was definitely its first member, and although young, her devotion was outstanding. She said, our joint love for Africa and our concern for the welfare of our race urged us on to immediate action. So Amy was heavily involved in the organization of the inaugural meeting of the UNIA in Jamaica and all the activities of the organization. And through her influence, she insisted that the parallel leadership positions for women should be established within the UNIA structure at all levels. For example, there would be a lady vice president, there would be a lady representative at all of the branches, etc. She also started the ladies division of the UNI, which later became the Black Cross Nurses Arm of the organization, which was inspired by the Red Cross. And there you see a photo of the Black Cross Nurses at a giant parade through Harlem. Now, unfortunately, the activities of the UNI in Jamaica were not as successful as Amy and Martin and Marcus hoped. 
the Jamaica proved to be a very difficult ground for the organization where the class and color hierarchy limited the possibilities for such mobilization and there was very little support. So Marcus sought his future elsewhere, traveling to London and then settling in Harlem. And Mayor Amy's parents, who were concerned about her relationship with Garvey, banished her to Panama, where she stayed for close to two years. In Panama, they continued their relationship until Amy joined Marcus in Harlem in September 1980. In Harlem, she became the General Secretary of the Organization and Secretary of the Ladies Division of the New York Local. That same year, she joined Marcus in the production and distribution of the Negro World, the UNI weekly newspaper, which would become the most widely distributed Pan-African newspaper globally. And they would work to walk the streets together to promote the UNIA and persuade crowds on the sidewalk to attend meetings at Liberty Hall, where she would give speeches about the importance of the UNIA as a political organization seeking to reconnect Blacks around, throughout the world with an imagined homeland in Africa for their economic, political, social, and cultural well-being. Uh, what was interesting is that in her speeches, uh, Amy would often use uh, poetry, in particular the poetry of Paul Lawrence Dunbar, and this would be one of the characteristics of the work of the early UNIA. By 1919, they acquired the building Liberty Hall in Harlem, which became their headquarters. And in the newspaper, The Negro World, in addition to political and historical articles, their work writings reflected the integration of the arts and literature, which was evident since the UNI's inception in Kingston, Jamaica. Some would suggest acting as a precursor to the Harlem Renaissance, which would follow. So, uh, In addition to asking the crowds to support the UNIA, the crowds would also be encouraged to support the economic ventures of the Garvey movement. And of course, one of the most important was the Black Star Line, uh, which was the plan to develop a shipping company to Africa. And there we see a stock certificate as well as the Negro World uh, article headline mentioning the securing of the first ship, ship. From very early, they were under continuous surveillance from the US, uh, from the US and the FBI. Amy was summoned to the district attorney's office on at least 17 occasions. She claimed more than any other UNIA member including Marcus Garvey. With Amy's support, the UNI became the most important black nationalist organization with over 1,120 branches in 40 countries throughout the Caribbean and Central America, including Cuba, which had 52 branches, but also in the US, Canada, and parts of Africa. 
Now, Amy Ashwood divorced Marcus in 1922, six months after their marriage. This marked the end of their collaboration and the end of an era for her. In spite of their long relationship, the marriage was disappointingly short. Some suggest it lasted six months and ended in controversy. Garvey sought an annulment in early March 1920 and claimed to have obtained a certificate of divorce in July 1922, but Amy never recognized it. She suffered a miscarriage soon after Garvey removed his personal effects from her house. And almost immediately thereafter, Marcus Garvey remarried Amy Jake Garvey, a friend of Amy, who had been her maid of honor at her wedding and his constant companion since the end of his marriage. She was also a Garveyite and a UNI activist, and she replaced Amy as Garvey's personal secretary. According to Judith Stein, the clash of these two strong wills must have been at the center of the conflict, which erupted almost immediately after the two returned from their honeymoon. The end of her marriage had always remained a place of pain, sadness, and regret. But for Amy, it also opened up new possibilities. As her biographer would note, she had youth, intelligence, self-confidence, vigor, and experience. And she strategically held on to her connection with Garvey. Amy traveled to Montreal, Jamaica, Trinidad, and Tobago, London, throughout Europe, and back to New York during 1924 to 1928. There, with her new partner, Trinidadian Sam Manning, she published the periodic, they published the periodical, the West Indian Times and American Review, arguing that African-American periodicals neglected the 3 million Caribbean people in the U.S., and that paper circulated throughout the Caribbean region. During this period, she collaborated with, with Sam Manning in the production of three musicals, which were performed in the U.S. at the Lafayette Theater in New York. Before settling in London, Amy would travel to a number of other countries, but her interest in Africa would move her in new directions. Uh, in London, she set up a Florence Mill social parlor, an international Afro restaurant, which was a key meeting point for Caribbean and African intellectuals and socialist-oriented West Indians and Africans. And we see some of them here, C.L.R. James, George Fadmore, Una Martin, Ras McConan, Kwame Kuma, and Jomo Kenyatta. But even prior to this visit to London, at an earlier period in 1924, Amy had, was involved in the formation of the Negro Progress Union, which was an organization of 13 Nigerian students whose aims reflected Garvey's ideas of self-reliance and self-help, but also an emphasis on girls' education reflecting Amy's influence. According to Hake Madi, Amy Ashwood Garvey, the strange wife of Marcus Garvey, was in Britain and had seen the articles in the evening news on West Africa where, and I must explain, 
where Solanke had complained that the evening news mentioned that in Nigeria, people were still living in trees and under very uh, difficult circumstances. And she objected to this and contacted Soyanke. So they became friends and together they formed the Nigerian Progress Union, which would eventually be transformed into the historically significant West African Students' Union. The next big activity for Amy was the anti-Abyssinian war invasion in 1935. As in response to the 1935 Italian invasion of Ethiopia, the Solidarity Organization, the International African Friends of Ethiopia, was formed at Amy's restaurant to assist by all means in their power in the maintenance of the territorial integrity and political independence of Abyssinia. Now, according to Makalani, Amy soon emerged as the organization's central figure, speaking at London rallies of both the Labour Party and the Communist Control League Against Imperialism, and connecting the organization to various other organizations. A tireless organizer, she assumed much of the responsibility for the group, and while James, the CLR, devoted his attention to struggles among British socialists, she built the organization into an international network. And here we see a photo of Amy with the four sons of the Ethiopian ambassador to London at the time. In April, sorry, in 1937, this organization was succeeded by another organization, the International African Service Bureau. The International African Service Bureau was founded with the support of George Padmore, and it had as its members Jomo Kenyatta as Honorary President, T.A. Marisho of Grenada, J.P. Danko of the Gold Coast, Sam Manning, Amy's partner, and Mohammed Saeed of Somalia. Amy was Honorary Secretary and became, again, its main spokesperson. This organization decided to adopt a socialist program and to publish a journal to disseminate information on African problems and the problems of all black people. CLR James edited the journal International African Opinion, but Amy's involvement with Ethiopia strengthened her relationship with Sylvia Panker, the feminist, who would be one of her lifetime friends. Between 1840 and 45, Amy returned to Jamaica. In Jamaica, she was able to attend the memorial for Marcus Garvey, but she also joined a movement for self-government and became president of a largely female political party in which female employment was an important platform issue. Now, she also petitioned for domestics to be included in the U.S. emergency farm labor scheme, which only included men. 
1944, she went to the U.S. where she campaigned for Adam Clayton Powell's election. She attended the council, a number of activities connecting with Comey and Kuma, Paul Roops, and others. And it was through these activities that she drew the attention of the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover even more than she had before. It was from the U.S. that she petitioned the Jamaican ambassador to allow the domestics to be included in the U.S. farm labor program. However, the, the Jamaican government refused. The People's National Party objected and discouraged any domestics from going to that racist country where they could face discrimination. And J. Edgar Hoover advised the State Department that she should not be allowed to be successful because that would just give her and the Garvey movement more attention and greater recognition. One of the high points of Amy Ashwood's life was the first Pan-African Congress, which was held in London in 1945. This Congress brought together many of the future leaders of Africa, and it charted a new course for Pan-Africanism globally. Amy chaired the first session, where her topic was the color problem in Britain. One attendant recollects. The chairman for the occasion was Mrs. Amy Garvey, wife of Mr. Marcus Garvey of Black Star fame. She opened the meeting with a very mature and balanced speech, touching on freedom and humanity. Soldiers of the Commonwealth and others had fought and sacrificed their lives to this end, and freedom and peace should be the prize to be won. At the Congress, there were only three women in attendance, and two of them were from Jamaica. One was Amy Ashwood Garvey, the other was Alma Labadee, who was representing the Jamaica UNIA. The sessions on the Caribbean were the only sessions where the issue of women was raised. Amy Men stated, very much has been written and spoken of the Negro, but for some reason, very little has been said about the black woman. She has been shunted into the social background to be a childbearer, and this has principally been her lot. Now, these words really echoed similar sentiments which were expressed by Claudia Jones, Trinidadian-born communist and social activist, in her 1949 essay, An End to the Neglect of the Problem of Negro Women. So clearly, women activists at the time were very concerned that their issues were not receiving the attention that it deserved. In her presentation, she discussed the problems of Jamaica, highlighting the class division, distinguishing between the traditional upper class and the new middle classes of teachers, etc. She criticized women of the welfare classes for their lack of interest and political participation, noting that the 10,000 black women teachers were a potentially powerful source. She also drew attention to the working class women of Jamaica, 
primarily domestic workers and laborers and blamed black men for doing little to improve the conditions of women, noting the poor living and working conditions that fueled the drive for emigration, which was so prevalent. Amy Labadee also had very strong statements to make in relation to women in Jamaica. The urge to return to Africa started at age 12 when Amy's grandmother told of being kidnapped and sold into slavery. This first was simulated further when she met Marcus Garvey and learned of his passion to return to Africa. Amy's call was a fulfillment of their dream and her wide connections with African leaders and intellectuals facilitated her journey. Unfortunately, Marcus was never able to visit the continent. So for three and a half years, Amy toured West Africa. She traveled from Liverpool to Senegal, Sierra Leone, Liberia, Ghana, Chad, Togo, the Cameroons, Nigeria, Gambia, Senegal, Dahomey, Spanish Guinea, and sections of French Equatorial Africa. Throughout her trip, she contacted women's organizations and spoke to them. In Sierra Leone, she met a paramount woman chief who said to her daughter of Africa, welcome home. And she expressed her joy to see a woman as one of the, a descendant of one of the first kings of Africa holding the reins of power in her hands. In Liberia was very important for Amy. It was where she felt that connection of those who had returned to Africa. And she was given diplomatic treatment in Liberia by President Tubman. She shared her enthusiasm for the emancipation of women and for educational and voting reform. She visited rural areas, recorded local customs, spoke to women and spoke to them on the history of Africa and people in the diaspora. One of the outcomes of her stay in Liberia was the manuscript entitled Liberia Land of Promise, which was taken to England to be edited and retyped, but it was in the end never published. Sylvia Pankhurst wrote a preview which summarized the content of her manuscript. And in her introduction, Amy gave her reason for the book. She said, I felt very strongly that peoples of African descent should become alive to the experiment that has been going on amidst Africans and has been conducted by Africans, the experiment in the science of statesmanship and nationhood that has been undertaken within the Republic of Liberia. The fruits of the experiment will be of immense value to all Africans during this period of transition. So she applied for and was given Liberian citizenship. At her next visit was to Gold Coast, Ghana, and there she was able to confirm her grandmother's ancestral roots, traced to the Ashanti, and she actually met some of her relatives and was officially welcomed as a long-lost daughter of the Ashanti. Amy remained in Ghana for two years, enjoying the hospitality. She rekindled her friendship with J.B. Dankwa, founder of the Gold Coast Convention Party, 
which brought her into conflict with her long, her long-time friend, Kwame Nkuma, its former secretary. There was an eventually a split between them, with Amy caught with divided loyalties in the middle. From Ghana, she moved on to Nigeria, where she rekindled the connections with the West African Students Organization colleagues, and she returned to London in July 1945. Her reflection showed a deep concern for the poor and rural women in Africa and the recognition that there, poverty existed in the midst of plenty. Amy returned to London, where she was confronted with the exacerbation of racism affecting new West Indian immigrants. She was particularly concerned with discrimination against school children. Around 1950, she declared, as more and more black workers come here to compete in the labor market, Britain will have its own color question, as in America. She established the Afro Women's Center, dedicated to spiritual, social, and political advancement of women, which was relocated in 1964 to number one Bassett Road in Ladbroke Grove. And this property was purchased for her by conservative MP Hamilton too. It developed into a community center, a restaurant, boarding house, welfare agency, and headquarters for a number of small business ventures. During this time, she worked on a number of publications, none of which was ever published. And here we see Amy with Claudia Jones, Paul Robeson, and others, etc. In 1963, she embarked on her second Caribbean tour. On this tour, she reflected what Horace Campbell refers to as a non-exclusionary Pan-Africanist humanism in her engagement with women of different ethnicities and nationalities. In Barbados, she presided over the launch of the Barbados Women's Alliance, and at that event, an Indo-Trinidadian woman activist, Cameron Sassoon, paid tribute to Marcus Garvey and spoke of the future advancement Africans and Indians could achieve by marching side by side. In Trinidad, many of her talks and lectures, she gave a series of lectures on women as leaders of world thought at the Himalaya Club and Indo-Trinidadian institutions through the support of the Akmarali sisters, two Indo-Trinidadian members of the Garvey Welcoming Committee to Trinidad and Tobago. In her lecture, she noted that women in the West Indies were not conscious of the influence which this would exert on world thought. They were not politically conscious. She compared the West Indian woman with the European woman and found her sadly lacking. She called on them to become conscious of their responsibilities and potential to make a significant impact. Like many black nationalists of the time, the yard sex progress was based on European achievement, and this was reflected in her presentation. During the long, month-long visit, she lectured throughout the country and region on many topics. In 1967, Amy returned to New York in the midst of the emergence of the new feminist movement and the Black Power and Civil Rights Movement. Interviewed by the New York Times, and there's the clipping from the New York Times, 
said Amy Asher Garvey, first wife of the greatest black leader in the 20th century and co-founder of the UNIA. And this, this, this article caused a lot of uh, discontent uh, among Amy Asher, Amy Jack, with Garvey and her family. She traveled throughout the U.S. and struggled to connect with the new ideas of feminism and black power. And after increasing ill health, she returned to Jamaica, where she died on the 3rd of May, 1969. Her wish to be buried in Africa could not be fulfilled. By all standards, Amy Asher Davi was an outstanding woman. Her love and commitment for Africa and its diaspora was legendary, and her willingness to defy and contend with the secret service of one of the most powerful countries on earth is not to be underestimated. Her commitment to women was a common thread running through all her activities and something of which she was never afraid to identify. This would have been remarkable at this time. Her life, however, is scattered with unfulfilled ambitions, failed business ventures, and incomplete projects. She left a number of unpublished manuscripts, including the memoirs of her life with Marcus Garvey and the UNIA, but found it difficult to access publishers. There was no doubt that the insecurities of the activist life would have contributed to this. The inability to secure full-time work and or regular income was the lot of most activists, as I mentioned earlier, yet she was able to travel extensively in Africa, North America, the Caribbean, Central America, and Europe. Carol Boyce Davy summarizes her life well when she says, Amy Ashwood Garvey ended up being present at most of the 20th, 20th century Pan-Africanist organizing, from the UNIA to the PN Post Independence Activities of Africa and Caribbean countries, early African diaspora feminist activism, coming up to and even touching the Black Power period when she was on her last leg, still desiring to be buried like the was in Africa. Thank you. Welcome back. And that was a lecture on Amy Ashwood Garvey. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the voice of Candy Staten. Darling, you all that I had. And, uh, of course, uh, we are here at the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, March 26, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And March is uh, International Women's History Month. Uh, prior to uh, that uh, track, by uh, Candy Staten. Uh, we heard a lecture on uh, the lifetimes and contributions of Amy Ashwood Garvey. Uh, we're going to conclude uh, this segment and our programming uh, for this month uh, with uh, the lectures of Coretta Scott King. Uh, Coretta Scott King, a political figure and cultural figure and activist in our own right, um, was the widow of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was martyred uh, some 55 years ago uh, next week uh, on April 4th of 1968. We're going to listen to the voice of Coretta Scott King. Audrey Lord, Muhammad Ali, Stephen Beagle, Elijah, Angelo, Odetta. Paul Robeson, the Pacifica Radio Archive celebrates Black History Month by honoring the voices of a revolution. Malcolm X, Gwendolyn Brooks, the Black Panthers, from the Montgomery bus boycott to the Black Power Movement to the fight for reparations, Pacifica was there. W.E.B. Du Bois, Lena Horne, Huey Newton, Geronimo Jijaga Press, Martin Luther King, Bayard Rustin, the Black Panthers, James Baldwin, Cornell West, Mia Abu-Jamal. Listen to these voices and you'll hear their dreams and demands for the political, social, and economic restructuring of America. To find out more, visit our website at pacificaradioarchives.org. Dick Gregory. Angela Davis. Alice Walker. Lorraine Hansberg. Sonia Sanchez. Esther. Esther Phillips. Winnie Mandela. Dorothy Daniels. Audrey Lord. of war in the American conscience, you who will not be deluded by talk of peace, but who press on in the knowledge that the work of peacemaking must continue until the last dawn is silent. That was the voice of the late Coretta Scott King. I'm Ambrose Eileen Sr. with Zarina Shakir. The Pacifica Radio Archives presents a special program honoring the memory of civil rights leader Coretta Scott King, who passed away Tuesday, January 31st, 2006. We will present the voice of Mrs. King herself in her own words. Here on the Pacifica Radio Network, KPFK, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, California, 98.7 FM, Santa Barbara, California, KBFK, I'm sorry, KPFA 94.1 FM in Berkeley, California, KPFT 90.1 FM Houston, Texas, and WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City. And we are broadcasting from the studios of WPFW, the Pacifica Radio Archives, is a collection of over 50,000 recordings documenting the broadcast history of Pacifica Radio. 
The collection is considered by many scholars and historians to be one of the most important audio collections in the world. For this program, the archive staff located three significant recordings of Mrs. King, and we will share those with you today. For more information about the archives, visit them on the web at pacificaradioarchives.org or call toll-free 1-800-735-0230. That number again is 1-800-735-0230. Ambrose, um, so you have been very involved with civil rights, and I'm not interviewing you. And very fortunately, uh, I got to know Mrs. King. Uh, I got a call from the person who was uh, uh, running the Full Employment Action Council uh, that she was the co-chair of. Mm -hmm. And uh, he called me from New York and said, look, uh, the labor unions are giving Coretta a hard time, and I need to add some people to the board that will challenge them. Would you accept if we got the offer? I said, of course I would. And fortunately, I was able to be of assistance to her in getting the labor movement to do the right thing about full employment. Wow. And I might just say that I've just recently taken a new position with the Muslim Women Lawyers for Human Rights, and one of my major tasks is going to be working on civil rights here in the D.C. metro area. So um, back to uh, (laughs) where we are. We begin this hour with the earliest recording of Mrs. King found in the Pacifica archives. The following speech Coretta Scott King gave in New York City three weeks after the assassination of her husband, Martin Luther King, Jr. He had been scheduled to address the 27th Anti-Vietnam War Peace Rally. Speaking from notes found in his pocket after his death, Coretta Scott King delivered his messages to the group. The anti-Vietnam War speech delivers the Ten Commandments against the war, ending with, Thou shall not kill. And now, the Pacifica Radio Archives is proud to present Mrs. King, late April 1968. My dear friends, of peace and freedom. I come to New York today with the strong feeling that my dearly beloved husband, who was snatched suddenly from our midst, slightly more than three weeks ago now, would have wanted me to be present today. Though my heart is heavy with grief from having suffered an irreparable personal loss, my faith in the redemptive will of God is stronger today than ever before. As many of you probably know, my husband had accepted an invitation to speak to you today. And had he been here, I am sure he would have lifted your hearts and spirits to new levels of understanding in his customary fashion. I would like to share with you some notes 
taken from my husband's pockets upon his death. He carried many scraps of paper upon which he scribbled notes or his many speeches. Among these notes was one set which he never delivered. Perhaps they were his early thoughts for the message he was to give to you today. I am sure he would have developed and delivered them in his usual eloquent and inspired fashion. I simply read them to you as he recorded them. And I quote, Ten Commandments on Vietnam. Thou shalt not believe in a military victory. Number two, thou shalt not believe in a political victory. Number three, thou shalt not believe that they, the Vietnamese, love us. Number four, thou shalt not believe that the Saigon government has the support of the people. Number five, thou shalt not believe that the majority of the South Vietnamese look upon the Viet Cong as terrorists. Number six, thou shalt not believe the figures of killed enemies or killed Americans. Number seven, Thou shalt not believe that the generals know best. Number eight, thou shalt not believe that the enemy's victory means communism. Number nine, Thou shalt not believe that the world supports the United States. Number 10, thou shalt not kill. King's Ten Commandments on Vietnam. You who have worked with and loved my husband so much, you who have kept alive the burning issue of war in the American conscience, you who will not be deluded by talk of peace, but who press on in the knowledge that the work of peacemaking must continue until the last gun is silent. I come to you in my grief only because you keep alive the work and dreams for which my husband gave his life. My husband derived so much of his strength and inspiration 
from the love of people who shared his dreams, that I too now come hoping you might strengthen me by the lonely road ahead. that my husband gave his major address against the war in Vietnam. On April 4, 1968, he was assassinated. I remember how he agonized over the great misunderstanding which took place as a result of his position on the Vietnam War. His motives were questioned, his credentials were challenged, and his loyalty to this nation maligned. Now, one year later, we see almost unbelievable results coming from all of our united efforts. Had we then suggested the possibility of two peace candidates as front runners for the presidency of the United States, our sanity certainly would have been questioned. Yet I need not trace for you how many of our hopes have been realized in these 12 short months. Never in the history of this nation have the people been so forceful in reversing the policy of our government in regard to war. We are indeed on the threshold of a new day for the peacemakers. But just as conscientious action has reversed the tide of public opinion and government policy, we must now turn our attention and the sole force of the movement of people of goodwill to the problems of the poor here at home. My husband always saw the problem of racism and poverty here at home and militarism abroad as two sides of the same coin. In fact, it is even very clear that our policy at home is to try to solve social problems through military means just as we have done abroad. The interrelatedness of domestic and foreign affairs is no longer questioned. The bombs we drop on the people of Vietnam continue to, to explode at home with all of their devastating potential. And so I would invite you to join us in Washington in our effort to enable the poor people of this nation to enjoy a fair share of America's blessings. There is no reason why a nation as rich as ours should be blighted by poverty, disease, and illiteracy. It is plain that we don't care about our poor people except to exploit them as cheap labor and victimize them through excessive rent and consumer prices. 
which subsidize corporation farms, oil companies, airlines, and houses for suburbia. But when they turn their attention to the poor, they suddenly become concerned about balancing the budget and cut back on funds for Head Start Medicare and mental health appropriations. The most tragic of these cuts is the welfare section to the Social Security Amendment, which freezes federal funds for millions of needy children who are desperately poor but who do not receive public assistance. It forces mothers to leave their children and accept work or training leaving their children to grow up in the streets as tomorrow's social problems. This law must be repealed. And I encourage you to join welfare mothers on May 12th, Mother's Day, and call upon Congress to establish a guaranteed annual income instead of these racist and archaic measures. These measures which dehumanize God's children and create more social problems than they solve. We will be marching toward Washington soon. On Thursday, May 2nd, we will return to Memphis to begin where my husband was slain and kick off his poor people's campaign. We will be marching toward Washington to demand that America share its abundant life with all its citizens. We should arrive in Washington by May 17th. I invite you to support the purposes of this march and to join us in Washington on May 30th for the Memorial Day weekend. I would now like to address myself to the women. The woman power of this nation can be the power which makes us whole and heals the broken community now so shattered by war and poverty and racism. I have great faith in the power of women who will dedicate themselves wholeheartedly to the task of remaking our society. I believe that the women of this nation and of the world are the best and last hope for a world of peace and brotherhood. This challenge is simply but profoundly stated in the words of one of the greatest black poets, the late Langston Hughes. He called the poem Mother to Son, but it speaks to the sons and the daughters of this generation and those yet unborn. It speaks of the determination and the indestructible spirit of a black people who refuse to be conquered. This spirit must somehow be infused in the hearts and souls of women and their sons everywhere. 
Listen to this black mother as she counsels her son in all of her ungrammatical profundity. Well, son, I'll tell you. Life for me ain't been no crystal stair. It's had tacks in it and splitters and boards torn up and places with no carpet on the floor. Bare. But all the time I've been a climbing on and reaching landings and turning corners and sometimes going in the dark where there ain't been no light. So, boy, don't you step down on the steps cause you find it's kind of hard. Don't you stop now. Find still going, honey. I'm still climbing, and life for me ain't been no crystal stair. With this determination, with this faith, we will be able to create new homes, new communities, new cities, a new nation, yea, a new world, which is we desperately need. You've just been listening to the late Mrs. Coretta Scott King delivering her husband's speech to a crowd of people in New York City where they gathered uh, at the 27th Peace Rally protesting the Vietnam War in April of 1968, three weeks after Dr. King's assassination. I'm Doreen Shakir in the studios of WPFW in Washington, D.C. And I'm Ambrose Eileen Sr. You know, Zarina, as I listened to her deliver the speech that Dr. King had planned to deliver, it was as if he was speaking in 2006. We just heard the State of the Union address. What did Dr. King say? Don't believe in military victory. And what did the president say? We are winning the war. We are going to be victorious. He said, don't believe that the Vietnamese will love us. We were told when we went into that war that the, that the Iraqis would be standing in the street throwing flowers at us. They would love us so much. We were told that there's going to be a democracy in Iraq. Dr. King says, don't believe that we're about democracy in Vietnam. He said, don't believe how they define terrorists. Our president last night used the word terror, terrorist, terrorism, uh, at least 15 times. Mm. He said, don't believe that the generals know best. Our president <laughs> told us last night that the generals did know best. Dr. King said, don't believe that the world supports the United States. Every evidence that we have been able to gather says the world is extremely disappointed with our performance, mm-hmm. and they are not supporting us. And he ended, thou shalt not kill. And yet Johns Hopkins University group went over to Iraq 
and did a count, and they came up with at least 100,000 Iraqis who had been killed. The official count is only 30,000. You're listening to a special program honoring the memory of the late Coretta Scott King, presented by the Pacifica Radio Archives. Our thanks to the archives and Brian DeShazer, Mark Torres, and Sean Dallas. For more information about the Pacifica Radio Archives and the historic collection, visit the website at www.pacificaradioarchives.org or simply call 1-800-735-0230. Let me just say, uh, Ambrose, in um, response to what you just mentioned in terms of that speech that she just gave, that um, it, it, it's so amazing, as I listen to her, even listening to any of Martin Luther King's speeches, Malcolm X speeches, listening to that particular poem that she read um, from Langston Hughes. I mean, everything is as if it was just done today or yes. yesterday. Yes. And, 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 it's, and it's absolutely appalling that people have not taken the time to learn the history, read the history, and how's it go? If we don't, we're doomed to repeat it, and God knows we are definitely repeating yes. this situation today. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and let me just say also that it's unfortunate that Iraq and Afghanistan are not the only wars that are going on right now. Right. That there are, as I've been reading, somewhere between 40 and 50 wars going on in the world today. And unfortunately, we are a part of all of them. So... Dr. King was right. He said, we are the greatest purveyor of violence on, on this earth. I I don't see how, you know, as I think about my son and my grandson, and I know you have children uh-huh. and grandchildren, how, you know, sometimes we can even wake up in the morning, but we know that there's there's another plan, too, another plan that God has, and surely <laughs> they will not succeed. So. Uh-huh. Let me just say that the next recording is a speech Mrs. King gave in Montclair, New Jersey, in 1971 at a Women's Day Forum. Mrs. King implores women of conscience to find solutions to the problems facing the world, racism, poverty, and war, all still relevant issues today. Mrs. King on this recording explains how the women of the world have the power to make the changes necessary to save mankind and womankind. This recording was first produced by the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and was the first in a series of programs presented by the Women's Collective at Pacifica Station WBAI in New York. And can I just say also, as I think about it before we go into this clip, that um, a woman who has been representing herself and the loss of her son, Cindy Sheehan, that um, there she was attending the speech uh, State of the Union, which she really didn't want to, mm-hmm. and was arrested, was arrested. And, and yes, women will lead this because as m- mothers, we are nurturers, and there are things that, I hate to say <laughs> you're a man, but there are things that we just don't believe. We just don't believe it. 
You know, I had gone to hear her the night before the State of Union address. Mm -hmm. You know why she was arrested? Because she wore a T-shirt that told the truth about how many of our boys had been killed. As soon as she pulled off her coat, the same guy who had led her to the seat suddenly screamed that here is a protester. And they rushed her out of there. And while he was doing that, the president was getting ready to talk about democracy. Hmm. Yeah. And where does the First Amendment come in? Mm-hmm. Freedom of speech? He has freedom of speech, but she didn't. Yes, and a congressman's uh, relative was also arrested the same thing. on the other side. Yes. 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 Well, let's just, I'll go back and do, in the memory of, her passing here is Mrs. King delivering her speech entitled Women with a Christian Conscience, presented today by the Pacifica Radio Archives. Whenever I'm called upon to deliver a Woman's Day address, I invariably find myself torn between two approaches. Whether to address myself to women in particular or to the audience in general. Today I find myself in the same predicament. I'm using as my general subject the Christian witness in today's turbulent world. For the women in the audience, I shall address myself to the subject, women of conscience, what are you doing? As Christians, we have a special commission to be not only concerned, but involved in the business of finding solutions to the manifold problems of our day. Therefore, it is important for us as individuals to recognize our true relationship to God, the source of our being then we can move out into the arena of action forthrightly, intelligently, and courageously. In the moving spirit of my constant and favorite prayer, God give me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, Courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Each one of us here has a potential influence and power, perhaps unrealized. The question is to discover who we are, what we are, what we can do, what there is to do and how we can best do it. We live in a turbulent, challenging, bewildering, and yet exciting and even hopeful age. At times it seems that the collective sins of mankind of all the preceding ages have been heaped upon the nations and the people of the world today. Likewise, are we the benefactors 
of the accumulated knowledge, technology, and wisdom of the ages. There is a multiplicity of problems facing mankind, but it is now possible to... Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, Coretta Scott King speaking in 1971 on the role of women in society. And uh, that's going to conclude uh, our program uh, for today. You've been listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast, this special edition uh, of our program. And uh, that is going to conclude uh, our programming for our International Women's History Month for 2023. Nonetheless, uh, we, of course, have uh, the women's questions, women affairs integrated into all of our programming uh, here at the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at uh, Pan-African, uh, new, net, the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out uh, with the music of a friend of the King family, Aretha Franklin, along with her father, Reverend C.L. Franklin. This is from an album from 1968, Aretha Franklin, Live in Paris. And this is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
wonder if you would believe me If I said if I lose this dream I don't know what I'm gonna do
tell me, do you like the blues? Do you really like the blues? Good. Mm. In the evening, when the sun goes down, you're gonna find me. Say that it's all up in the holy 